0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brandt. This episode, we're discussing SST-167, the Semantics LP, Bone of Contention. It's our first time having this combo on the show, but of course, one of the members is Elliot Sharp, who we've had on the show, but we've got a new combo with Elliot. Is it a combo? I think it's a combo. Isn't it it's a combo? a trio. Wouldn't you call that a trio? Well, what do you call a combo? More than three? I don't know. (laughs) I call it a trio. Okay, well, it's a trio. Fine. (laughs) It's a trio combo. We've got Elliot Sharp in it. As I said, we've had uh, Elliot on the show, but this is a new combo trio that uh, brings kind of a new flavor to the show. We haven't really had anything like the semantics on before, and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it, actually. Like Mm -hmm. It was um, especially the first side of this record. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, And... Brent, we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, Ned Rothenberg's on the show. Yeah. Snuck him in at the 11th hour.
0: Yeah, so cool to have him on. Like, another super prolific mm-hmm. avant-garde jazz player. Um, so totally fits with Elliot, of course. And uh, so happy to have him on because these guys haven't been around for a while, this trio combo, you know? Yeah, yeah. Before we get into it, Brent, why don't you hit people with some spiels?
1: Okay, I have a... Three on the Tree, Harry Howard edition for you. Nice. I've been really digging into Harry Howard's solo catalog here since we had him on the show. Oh, yeah. And there's some great stuff in there, man. So, Adam, A-T-O-M. The album's called In Every Dream Home, 2019 It Records. Uh, They're a Melbourne-based band. Harry on vocals and guitar. His partner, Edwina Preston, on keys and vocals. Ben Hepworth on synth and drum programming. It's all electronic drums. Uh, It's cool though. Edwina does about half of the vocals and she's really great. Has kind of an 80s new wave post-punk goth vibe at times. It's very synth heavy in a Mm. cool way. It's really good. And then this was a bit harder to track down. Pink Stainless Tail. Right. This is me in the park with no clothes on. I like the flowers. 2005. Uh, Self-released. The Pink Stainless Tail band name comes from a Red Crayola song, if that gives you any indication about where they're coming from. Uh, This is the band Harry had with Simon Strong, a writer and filmmaker and also an artist, visual artist. Great garagey psychedelic new wave. Really good songs. Simon's a perfect frontman for this band. Uh, They had an album before and after this one that I'm trying to track down right now, but they're a little harder to find just probably because they're self-released, I'm guessing. But Ryan, my favorite of the three, which says something about the other two because they're both really great, uh, but this one is killer. It's the debut from Harry Howard and the NDE. Ah. And it's just called Near Death Experience. That's the name of the album. This is the band Harry has, again, with his partner Edwina, along with David, Grainy and Claire Moore of the Moodists. Right. Uh, And it rules. The songs are great, harry has that lazy drawl in his vocal delivery that is just perfect for this not unlike roland uh the keys are great uh they kind of more stab into the riffs a little bit like with single keys like licks It, it more reminds me of like what you hear in say the fall or something like that for the keyboards okay just really good songs good riffs good lyrics great vocals super catchy uh, they also have two more that came out after this one that I need to track down. Uh, there's a band camp, too, where you can hear all of the Harry Howard and the NDE records, as well as some singles. And also, while we're talking about Harry, uh, our pal Keith, who's a Roland super fan, and coincidentally wrote uh, the song we use as our intro music, uh, he hit me to a few things. He told me about a book... Harry put out called this guitar belongs to Roland S Howard which is a 44 page book all photos no text it just it's a photo book of Roland's Fender Jaguar whoa yeah and Ryan just for you he also let me know that the documentary you mentioned about the Melbourne post-punk scene in the 70s and 80s called We're Living on Dog Food yes yes is available to rent or purchase on Vimeo Okay. Five dollars to rent, ten dollars to buy as a download.
0: And did you did Keith give you a report? Like, is it any? He did. Is it worth he it? did not, and I haven't watched it yet either. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested. I I, I want to check that out. Still, might have to splurge five bucks. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you could buy it for ten, Ryan, and then you could burn it onto a DVD and print a cover and put it into a. <laughs> <laughs> I know how fussy you are about those sorts of things.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see if it's worth it.
1: Yeah. Okay, Ryan, uh, here's a cool thing that I decided to do. So I've mentioned this label uh, that was based out of Orange County a few times in in recent episodes called Dr. Dream Records. Yep. And I've kind of become fixated on this label and some of the artists in particular. I see that you're writing down Dr. Dream, Ryan. I am going to hip you to the shit you need to hear on Dr. Dream, okay? (laughs) Okay. So just hold tight. There's more to come on this in the weeks to come. Oh. Just sit, sit tight. I've got some mega recommends for you coming. Whoa. Okay. Uh, this is a little series that, I, that I'm that i cooking up, a little mini series. About a label. About, about a label and some of the artists. It's
0: just, like, it, just like this podcast we're in.
1: Right. Uh, the, la- <laughs> the label's super eclectic. Some of it's amazing, some of it not so much. But stylistically, all over the map, which I am a huge fan of. So in the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about some of the bands on the label, as well as the label itself. So the first part in this miniseries, I decided to go right to the start with the band Human Therapy, whose American Dream 7-inch is Dr. Dream 001 from 1983. Do you know the band Human Therapy, Ryan? I don't think so. Okay, well, listen to this. This is from Mick Rhodes, the, kind of the, the main dude in, in the band. Dave Hayes, the founder of Dr. Dream Records, started the label to release that record. He saw us playing at a backyard party in 1982 and decided then and there to make a record label to put out our record. So I asked him about Human Therapy, uh, and they're cool. I'll get to a little bit more about them, about their music in a bit here. But I asked him about the band, you know, what kind of scene they were in, I guess, and, and how the band came together. So... Human Therapy drummer Bill Berrigan and I started playing together in 1979 in our sleepy little suburban hometown of Glendora. Shortly thereafter, I began to get into punk rock. I fell in love with the raw energy, freedom, and weirdo DIY aesthetic of what I was hearing and reading about in British music mags, LA Weekly, and Flipside. Our bass player, Paul Hale, RIP, did not dig punk and bowed out. In stepped my high school classmate Kevin Kubota, later of San Diego's Insolence. We spent the early part of 1981 learning a bunch of covers, and I slowly began to write music of my own. We played our first party in early summer, and from then on, we were off and running. My writing accelerated to the point where we had an entire set of 30-plus original songs by early 1982. Soon we were playing clubs and traveling for shows. In those early days, we played with various bands, including The Cramps, Social Distortion, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, My Heroes, The Minutemen, Saccharine Trust, The Dickies, Toxic Reasons, D.I., The Abandoned, The Great Rick Rick, Super Heroines, Pandoras, and many more I've since forgotten. By 1984, L.A. was at its hardcore apex. Things were getting nastier and more violent, and the overriding reason I got into punk rock, that freedom and outsider weirdo aesthetic, seemed all but gone. The shows were a sea of shaved head, Very angry white dudes in jeans, engineer boots, and white or black t-shirts beating the shit out of each other. Our sound had been fairly hard and fast, though always with a pop vibe from the beginning. They kind of sound, Ryan, a bit like, you know, those early Orange County bands like Adolescence maybe or something like that. Human Therapy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, He goes on. But I was starting to be influenced by bands like The Birthday Party and Echo and the Bunnymen. And that was reflected in the songs I was writing. We were being put on bills with bands that we had no business playing with. That summer we played with Suicidal Tendencies in Riverside. That was the last time I agreed to play a show for a strictly hardcore audience. So I asked him about Dr. Dream Records and David Hayes, who's unfortunately since passed away. And I asked him about this in-house recording studio I've heard a little bit about that the Dr. Dream artists used, like Dave, he had a connection to a, a, his own studio. Mm. Dave Hayes was the driving creative force and visionary for Dr. Dream. He eventually bought a recording studio in Anaheim, or maybe leased it, called AMS Studios. It was pretty state-of-the-art. Dave Hayes was a wonderfully eccentric dude, especially when I met him in 1982. He must have been 21, I was 18. He seemed like a grown-up to me. He was confident in his vision right from the start. This was a shock to me considering we were both living in the sticks, the eastern suburbs of LA, 40 miles from Hollywood. Dave and his bass-playing bandmate Russell Dean, also, rest in peace, had a band, World 32. They were full-on hippies, long-haired, dope-smoking, hard rocker dudes. Normally their appearance would have been a red flag for us as we'd been in a bunch of scuffles with guys who looked just like them or who had decided they wanted to try and beat up some punk rockers. But these guys were not like other hippies. Dave had an an encyclopedic musical knowledge and immediately dug what we were doing. He loved Captain Beefheart and especially Frank Zappa and was a virtuoso on piano. Dave made good on his promise and quickly made plans to record a record with us. And amazingly, it fell into place. We recorded everything on the first EP, basic tracks, minimal guitar solo overdubs, and vocals at a fantastic 24-track studio in Claremont now a dry cleaner sadly, in an afternoon. A couple months later, Dr. Dream 001 came out. We were all elated. The record changed our lives in ways that were, in retrospect, small, but nonetheless had a lifelong impact, especially on me. Dave helped us all he could. He was funny. He'd give us records and make stickers, and even had old-school black satin tour jackets made for us with the Dr. Dream logo, embroidered on back and on our names over the pockets nice he continued to encourage me to grow as a writer and musician and put out our follow-up single the sky falls slash power in 1984 dave was truly a dreamer his support of us and later dozens of other bands never wavered he never did figure out how to promote human therapy in a meaningful way neither did we we languished in the suburbs and eventually grew disenchanted with the band, playing our last show with the original band in 1986. Dave's business acumen improved as the the years rolled on, and he eventually developed a roster of more commercially successful bands. He opened up a retail store in Orange County, and lived the life of an independent record mogul for a long time, before selling Dr. Dream to a major label in the 90s. He and I kept in touch throughout his life. He bought a talk radio station in Bullhead City, Arizona, and was a popular talk radio host for several several years. He'd use human therapy songs as bumper music sometimes, which was a kick to hear. Hmm. There was a who's who of Orange County punk rock at Dave's funeral. Speaker after speaker told stories of how he had helped them, never gave up on, on them, and how they owed their careers to him. I kept thinking back to the guy we all affectionately called Hippie Dave in his crash pad in La Verne with copious Mexican weed smoke swirling about showing us the sounds he could get on his new Kurzweil keyboard. We had our gear set up in his living room and we were going over songs for a new record listening to Dave's ever-present advice and encouragement. The last time I saw Dave was about two months before he died. He was living near Palm Springs and had come up to Pappy and Harriet's in Pioneertown to see my current band play on a Thursday night. Dave was, of course, the center of attention, still the charismatic weirdo, somewhere between shaman and salesman. At the end of the night, we sat in his car, looking up at the California high desert sky with its incomprehensibly vast blanket of stars. He played me some music, cues, short bits of music for TV, film, and video games he'd written for a new publishing venture. He said I could really do well if I'd write and record some myself and send them to him. He really had me thinking... This could turn into something great for me. I was thrilled. It reminded me of that first night I'd met him in a muddy backyard in Laverne. He made me feel like I had something to offer then. and damned if he hadn't done it again nearly four decades later. So uh, human therapy released two records, Ryan, in 2010, It's So you, Some new material, and a retrospective called "Let It Breathe, uh, both on Hot Tramp Records, which I believe is uh, mixed label. You can hear Let It Breathe, which is got everything on it, including It's So You and the Dr. Dream singles on Spotify. Uh, it's awesome. There's also, Ryan, a Dr. Dream Facebook group that I found, which looks like it was maybe started by Dave. Uh, but I could be wrong, like before he passed away. It talks about a documentary that was in the works for Dr. Dream. Not sure what the status of that is. As well, it mentions that Dave was writing a book at the time of his unfortunate passing about Dr. Dream. And it looks like it's kind of since turned into a memorial page of sorts for Dave. And what really comes across both on the page with some of the other artists that I've talked to uh, and here with Mick is how loved and admired he was. So stay tuned for more about Dave, Dr. Dream, and some of the other killer records he put out in the next few weeks. So thanks thanks to Mick for sending that in. I really liked getting some some info on Dave Hayes and Dr. Dream and human therapy.
0: Yeah, I was sneaking suspicion there's stuff on there that we know, but it's just not jumping out at me yet. Yeah, well, you're going to know it soon enough. <laughs> right on. That's it for me, Ryan. What do you have? Okay, I've got a couple of new branches on the SS tree. I was only able to All come right. up with two, so it's not three on the tree. First one, though, I have to ask you, Brent, who's on first? I don't know who's on first, but Watts on bass. That's right. Watts on a new track recorded as a benefit for the Blackheart music pub in the UK. It's a crowdfunder to keep it going. That's a totally worthy cause. The track is called Song for the Blackheart. It's it's the lyrics are kind of telling the tale of the Blackheart, this pub, and you know how everyone used to go there and see bands and stuff like that. They're trying to keep it alive in time for live music to return it's watt and an artist named Leevil, l-e-e-v-i-l and someone named ben edwards there's a zillion ben edwards like in discogs i don't know which one it is i couldn't even figure it out but you can go to the band camp buy this track and support the black even though it's not uh, here in canada all of the clubs around the world need to stay alive in order for the circuit to live ultimately right so right yep Provide some support there. Another one on the tree. I mentioned this a few weeks back, but it's finally out. And and there's a bonus, bonus cup for this particular release. Scott Reynolds' new solo acoustic record, Chihuahua and Buffalo, is out, recorded by Bill Stevenson at the Blasting Room. Scott's got a new website, though, that you can buy it from, called scottreynoldsmusicart.com. So you can buy copies of this there, as well as uh, a Pavers record. But there's also copies that you can now buy on CD. And I'm I must have missed this because I thought that you could basically not get this record. It's called Stupid World. You can now buy it on his website on CD. It was, I thought, supposed to be a cassette release that never actually came out, and you could only get it as files for download. It's mm. um and Stefan Edgerton guests on it as well. So you can get, at least to me, two new. Scott Reynolds CDs that are live, go and get them. Right on. And then there's probably is some sort of relation to the SS tree. There's definitely six degrees of innovation all over this next release. I'm going to mention the the group, if you can call it that, or the artist, if you can call it that, is Specimen Box, and the record is called yeah. Four Walls. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah, it's led by the bass player Larry Boothroyd from Victim's Family, also in a a ton of other bands with Ralph Spite like Hellworms, Saturn's Flea Caller. He's also in Jello and Guantanamo School of Medicine. It's a double LP on Valley King Records, which you can buy from the Secret Serpent's website. Right now it has over 113 people on it. It's called Constantly Morphing Instrumental Music. It took eight years, it's over 80 minutes of music, He apparently got one minute of music from each person, all 113 of them, and asked for them to send them like 60 seconds of music, any tempo, any key. And he basically blended it together to make four 20-minute sides of music. And it's called Kaleidophonic Hybrid Fidelity. But here's why it caught my attention in particular. Of those 113 people, And I think last episode or the episode before, we had a a No Means No update. John Wright and Andy Kerr are on the Specimen Box record. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the first time they are on record together since the Zero Plus Two Equals One album. So that's cool in and of itself. No SST alum? Uh, None that jumped out at me. But there's, again, there's probably millions of six degrees of innovation on it. I read through 100, yeah. all 113 names, and I, I wasn't like, oh, Keith Morris. You know, it didn't. Right. There's no one like that. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I remember reading something about that a while ago, like a couple months back.
0: Yeah. I can't find any kind of sample to check it out. I couldn't find it at the time either. Yeah, because yeah. I'm interested to hear what I it sounds like. I kind of like. forgot about it. Yeah. it I mean, it would, co- it would cost more than the record itself just to get it shipped to my house, and you mm-hmm. can't buy a download of it, so... It's uh, it's something where I'm looking at it. It'll sit there, like in my favorites, and I'll probably eventually get it before it's sold out. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Brant, relates to one of my favorite topics, which is literature. Right. Okay. Um, you didn't find another audio book, did you? I didn't. Or no, no, no. This is not in a grab bag. <laughs> I actually, um, I snagged a book that I didn't even know existed. I'm I'm a little surprised it escaped. Yours and my attention. You may have mentioned it to me, and I, I wasn't paying attention, or it escaped me. But um, there is a book. It was released in 2019, November of 2019, called Kim Salmon, and the Formula for Grunge. Speaking of Roland Howard in Australia. It's called Nine Parts Water, One part Sand. It came out, as I said, 2019, 320 pages on Melbourne Books. I'm looking forward to checking that out. I think that that'll be a really good read. And Kim Salmon, of course, from the scientists, Be Suburban and others. It'll be good. Yeah, Harry mentioned that book. They His band,
1: did they back up Kim Salmon or something like that? Yes. For the, yeah. 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 Did he mention
0: the book in the interview?
1: Yeah, he did. Yeah.
0: What? How come I didn't yeah. catch that? Yeah, I don't know. He did, though. No way. I'm not on my A game. Yeah. Well, it might be just a matter of semantics. Do you want to get into it? (laughs) Yeah.
1: History lesson, part one.
0: All right. Before I throw it over to you, Brant, in the interview, as I said, we've had Elliot Sharp on before. First time to have Ned on. And then, of course, there's Sam on drums. Just an excellent New York improv jazz supergroup. And very cool to get into this. I really, you know, to be honest, I had the record. I kind of bought this record, you know, when you and I had, well, mostly you had the idea for the show way back when, whatever it was in the 90s. And I started, I started filling all the holes in my SST collection. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm checking off my list and I got this and I, I probably bought this record four years ago. And I have not listened to it once until this week. And I listened to it over and over. It is a surprisingly catchy, avant-garde instrumental jazz record. Like, I was really shocked by that. Yeah,
1: same for me. Hadn't heard it before this week. So it was fun listen. It was fun Mm -hmm. this week listening to this. For sure. Yeah. Okay. so Semantics, as you mentioned, was a New York City-based avant-garde jazz supergroup, a trio uh, comprised of Sam Bennett on drums, acoustic, and electronic percussion, voice, and FZ1, which I believe is a sampler. Uh, Ned Rothenberg, alto and tenor saxophones, bass clarinet, ocarina, if I'm saying that right, which is kind of a, almost like a flute type of thing. I had to look it up. He plays panpipe and also FZ1 programming. And Elliot Sharp, double neck guitar bass, guitar, six-string bass, lap steel, guitar-controlled Mirage, which is a sampler. Yeah. Elliot, as you mentioned, is someone we've seen on previous episodes, 128, Land of the Yehus, and 129, Tessellation Row, which we interviewed him for, both of those episodes. Uh, Also on 102, the No Age Comp, maybe somewhere else. I was trying to think if he's popped up on a Henry Kaiser record or something, but I'm not Mm. sure. Uh, He was a central figure in the avant-garde and experimental scene in New York, starting when he moved there in the late 70s. In his recent and excellent book, Irrational Music, he talks about how blown away he was by what became known as the downtown scene in New York in the early 80s. He says, daily, I marveled at New York's musical universe. Players operating at extreme poles in jazz, electronic music, and rock and attempting to make unheard music real. At clubs and record stores, at coffee shops and on the street, I was meeting musicians anytime and anywhere. Sonny Chirac, Vernon Reed, Don Cherry, Thurston Moore, Rise Chatham, Melvin Gibbs, James Blood Almer, Robert Quinn, Michael Jara, Ned Rothenberg. There were collaborations of all sorts, some impromptu, others organized around gigs or recording sessions. Ned Rothenberg is a multi-instrumentalist, Ryan, and composer. His main instruments are alto sax, clarinet, bass cl- clarinet, flute, and sh. Again. Say it. Say it. <laughs> Shakuhuchi. Right. I hope I'm saying that right. I should have asked him how to say that.
0: said You mentioned it a couple yep. episodes ago with uh, Brian Ritchie, right?
1: Yep. Japanese bamboo flute. He's been internationally acclaimed for his solo music, which uh, he has presented for over 30 years in hundreds of concerts throughout North and South America, Europe, Japan, and Australia. Born in Boston, he graduated from Oberlin College and studied at Oberlin Conservatory, Berklee School of Music. He's known uh, for a self-taught technique of circular breathing, as well as his experiments with overtone manipulation and accurate microtonal organization through the manipulation of multiphonics, not only using his horns in their standard melodic role, but also as rhythmic and harmonic engines in both solo and ensemble contexts. His discography is, like all these guys, insane. Uh, Many releases under his own name as leader as well as too many groups and collaborations to mention. He's played with people like Fred Frith, Mark Ribot, John Zorn, who's labeled Zadok, he's also released material on, uh, and many many more. Sam Bennett, another mainstay of the downtown music scene in the 80s uh, and early 90s, also has several releases under his own name as well. Uh, many also with, uh, with a bunch of different groups and collaborations. He's a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, the bio on his bandcamp, which is just one of the gnarliest bandcamps I've ever seen as far as content goes, Reads, singer and songwriter, player of unusual string instruments such as three-string and one-string guitar, jaw harps, mouth bow, electronics, and junk, plus all manner of drums and percussion. That's sambennett.bandcamp.com. Sam is spelled with two M's. Uh, he's currently living in Tokyo, where he's been since the mid-90s. If you check out his bandcamp... Uh, his music. There's a lot of it. It's kind of a Tom White style percussive swamp
0: Americana. It's cool. Kind of like uh, Rain Dogs or, you know, 80s, 90s Tom Waits. Yep, kind of like that. Uh,
1: In uh, Elliot Sharp's book, he does not talk at all about Bone of Contention, but he does talk about uh, the start of the band. He says, saxophonist Ned Rothenberg was booked for a concert at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in April of 1985 and asked percussionist Sam Bennett and me to join him. I had known Sam in Massachusetts and dug his explicitly African approach with a hybrid drum kit comprising various cowbells, drums, and timbales. Ned and I shared certain technical and aesthetic approaches on our instruments that dovetailed nicely. Polyrhythmic, interlock, multiphonics, open tonality ned was also an accomplished sakahuchi player with a beautiful sense of abstract narrative we established some simple structures on which to Im- improvise and hit that set felt great and we decided to form a band which i named semantics dubbed the first downtown supergroup by members of the press we were able to exploit the hype and book a number of concerts and tours in europe and on the west coast we turned to plaza sound and recorded an album of works both composed and improvised for the German label No Man's Land. That's all he has to say about semantics in the book. Yeah. Did you check
0: out that first record of
1: theirs? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's different Different than this one, hey? Yeah, I like it. Um, yeah, if you like Bonet Contention, you should definitely track that first album down. It was reissued actually last year on a Austrian label called Klang Gallery. You'll hear uh, Ned talk about, uh, about it in the interview. Uh, it was self-titled, the record, but it also has the players' names on the cover, and he suggests that possibly the album was called Semantics. Yeah. Because up until that point, they were building themselves live under their own names, and then they possibly just adopted the Semantics name as a band. There's one more track, too, that uh, Ned hit me to that came out on an interesting album by Sato Michihiro called Rodan. That's the name of the album, 1989. It was produced by John Zorn, this record. And uh, this guy, Sato, he collaborates with a bunch of people, Fred Frith, Bill Frizzle, and Semantics are on it as well. They do a cool track. So, Ryan, not only do we have Ned on the show, but I also got a few things from Elliot and Sam. Nice. So here's what Elliot says about the start of the band. I was living in Western Massachusetts for one year, beginning in August '78 and first met Sam there at a gallery which had improvised music concerts on occasion. I moved to New York in October 1979 and met Ned, soon thereafter, at New Music Distribution Service, an extremely important organization for independent jazz and new music. We would often run into each other at gigs and found a resonance in each other's sonic approach. Sam moved to New York in 1984 and also frequented the scene. Uh, So after that that first show where they improvised together, he says, We recorded our first album at Don Hünerberg's Plaza Sound at Radio City Music Hall later in 1985. Ned functioned as producer. I suggested the title Semantics, which we then adopted as the band name. The record was released by Rift in the U.S. and Review in Europe. Here's Sam on that studio, that Plaza Sound studio. That's the kind of studio you don't forget. The place was enormous, big enough for, well, a symphony orchestra to record in. It was crazy. I mean, thinking of the people who recorded in that room, it was really kind of awe-inspiring. And we've talked about that room before, Sonic Youth recorded there. Yep. I hear the huge room was long ago subdivided into smaller rooms. Too bad. The sessions were fun. Little did I know I'd never set foot in another recording studio of that nature again, ever. There just aren't studios like that around anymore. And if there are... I ain't winding up in them. So I asked them both a little bit about the writing process. Elliot says, We did not rehearse much at all. We had one or two before the Bone of Contention session, but we were all quick learners. We had some things written out, like the melody of Arbeit Mockfry, for instance, but mostly verbal or text instructions. A number of the ideas were worked out in the studio and elaborated through improvisation. Then I asked them about touring and live gigs. Sam says, We played joints around the East Village and downtown, mostly. I think we played a place called Chandelier. That might have been our first gig. Pretty sure we played at the Kitchen, the Knitting Factory, CBGBs, the usual spots, I think. As far as double bills or whatever, I don't recall any specific bands we might have played with. We were fairly active. We played here and there around New York City, did a European tour, 12 or 15 dates, maybe more. Here's what Elliot says, after the first record was released, we did a few concerts in New York, as well as shows in San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, BC, mostly art spaces and galleries. There were not so many opportunities for us to play in the US, but we found much more of a welcoming reception in Europe, with two tours covering Holland, Germany, France, Austria, and Switzerland in 85-86. On the first tour, we split an evening with Jerry Allen's trio in Amsterdam. In Europe, we played clubs, art spaces, theatres, squats, and a few festivals, including Frankfurt Jazz in 1986, opening for Chet Baker, guesting with Archie Shep's group. He says Baker OD'd in Amsterdam the next day. I don't recall shows with other artists, but that might be a blank in my memory. We had very wild shows in Berlin and East Berlin packed with boisterous audiences. Then I asked them both about a third record, why they didn't do one. Yeah. Or whether there was ever talk of one. Elliot says, not that I recall. We'd all become quite busy with various other projects. We did do a reunion concert at Issue Project Room in New York City and a festival in Wells around 2004, 2005. Very enjoyable. Sam and I have played together a few times over the years. And Sam Ryan was in Carbon for a bit. Uh, He's on SST-194, Carbon Lernix. So we'll we'll be seeing Sam again as well. Sam says about a third record, no, the thing had served its purpose, and after the two releases and the gigs we'd done, I guess all three of us thought it was enough. We all had other things we wanted to do more than that particular trio. So thanks to E-Sharp and Sam for sending that stuff in. No doubt. Yeah. Should we throw it over to Ned? Yeah, man. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Ned Rothenberg. Ned, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much, Brent. All right, Ned. Now, take me back, if you can, to your musical beginnings. You grew up in Boston, I believe. Yeah, I grew up outside Boston in Newton, Massachusetts. Okay. Now, when did you first start playing
2: music? Well, I started playing the recorder when I was six years old. At nine years old, my parents said, well, you should now play something else. And so uh, I thought the clarinet was a logical next step. Uh, I played the clarinet from the time I was nine to 12, and then I kind of switched to the saxophone. And uh, yeah, I was a little music nerd. You knew you wanted to do music as a career? Oh, not at, not at 12 years old. I knew by the time I left, Newton for Oberlin. I went to Oberlin, which was a, you know, a a school that combines a conservatory with a um, liberal arts college. And and I knew that it would be a good place to go in case I decided I did want to do music. I I knew it was a possibility. And uh, and by the time I was done there, I, yeah, I was definitely uh, interested in uh, following it up. Right. Now,
1: what kind of stuff were you listening to? Was it like when did you get interested in more
2: avant-garde types of music? Um, I was uh, as a as a as a teenager. I was basically into black music of all types. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but I would listen all day to Marvin Gaye and uh, Aretha. And I was into jazz. I was into Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane and uh, uh, Ross and Roland Kirk and Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus. Um, as I got toward the end of high school, I started getting into Ornette Coleman, Eric Dolphy, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, yeah, more Avon stuff. One, th- one little story, which is funny, give you a sense of it is when I was like 12 or 13, I was just starting the saxophone and I had an older sister who had a, a boyfriend for a minute from New England Conservatory. And he gave me this record, uh, which is now an iconic record, Andrew Hill's Point of Departure with Eric Dolphy and Kenny Dorham, Joe Henderson. I was about 13, and I remember putting it on and thinking, wow, this is just way too weird. Mm -hmm. And it kind of went to the back of my record pile. And about three or four years later, when I was beginning to do a little more experimental things, I, I, uh, I found this record again. And it was like, wow, this was, you know, this guy was like, uh, you know, a seer. I never could f- find out who he was. My sister couldn't even remember what his name was, except it was David somebody. Hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, by the time I was f- finishing high school, I was already into pretty exploratory stuff. I was also into some early electronic music and uh, some some early early. You know, I was interested in Tangerine Dream, things like this. Uh, you know, anything with different sounds. Okay.
1: Um, was moving to New York a goal? Or did you just kind of um, end up yeah, there? Yeah,
2: moving to New York, well, I, I, it was kind of obvious. Uh, there's two kinds of people in Boston. The ones who think it's the center of the world and the ones who know better. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and I was always in the latter. And... Uh, uh, and yeah, if you're from Boston, you know it's either you're gonna like uh, uh, struggle with this rivalry in New York, and and if you don't care much about baseball, then it really is about culture. And in culture, I'm sorry, Boston is is notable, but it's it you know it's it's not New York. And it was yeah, it was the obvious place to go. I'd also had a I got a great taste of things because I did a apprenticeship, my junior year. There's something called the Great Lakes Colleges Association and And one of the options you have was to spend your uh half your junior year doing a uh, some kind of program with them and one and they had a um they had a program in New York studying working with artists and I apprenticed with a couple they were then a couple, Joan LaBarbera and Bruce Ditmus. Bruce Ditmus was then playing drums with Gil Evans and Enrico Rava and Joan LaBarbera was uh had worked with john cage and uh i worked with her with merce cunningham and so i got a great introduction to the, the music world and plus i was hanging out at like studio rithby uh, uh sam rivers place and you know the early loft jazz places mm-hmm. and uh yeah it was a great year and then um toward the end of my senior year anthony braxton came to um oberlin and he picked up four of us to and put us in the uh creative music orchestra which he took to europe that spring oh wow so that was a great you know that was like my first european tour with the big band and i got to you know really get my feet wet and yeah so um oh and and at oberlin i had a group with uh called fall mountain not the greatest name in uh (laughs) retrospect but that was with bob ostertag who played Mm -hmm. the surge synthesizer surge modular synthesizer Bob is still uh, uh, active as an electronic musician Mm -hmm. and Jim Katzen, who was a a violinist and uh, but Jim and I were both very influenced by electronics. Uh, Our biggest frustration with that band was we had a very wide sound palette and people would come up after the gig and say, That was great. What were you guys doing? Because they thought it was all electronic, (laughs) when in fact we were really making a third of the sound. Right. Um, So,
1: non-traditional sounds, maybe.
2: Well, exactly. Yeah. But uh, but we uh, we got to play um, got to go to Europe a couple times when we you know I came to New York with them and we got a nice blurb in the paper from uh, we we played at the at the Ear Inn, which still exists. I think it's one of the oldest oldest buildings in Manhattan it's a little farmhouse on Spring Street they don't really have music anymore but in those days they used to have a Sunday concert series and we played a gig there and none other than Robert Fripp showed up uh-huh. and um and he uh he dropped a nice uh compliment in the Soho Weekly News which was then the uh the competitor to the Village Voice you know- And with word of mouth and a few other things we you know we managed to get some some work together and and that that band was active for about two years and um yeah and and then that was my first group in new york yeah i think i saw a
1: quote somewhere from robert fripp that said bob was the the only synthesizer player that he that he's interested in or something along those lines
2: well, I think that was the quote. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was, he was, he was, yeah, he, he, it was a quote mainly about Bob, mm-hmm. uh, but, but anyway, but he came up and gave us, you know, was very friendly at, at the gig and, and then dropped a nice, you know, Bob, what Bob was doing then improvising, you know, with, a, with a, with a, a keyboard, a non-keyboard synthesizer, you know, just, just basically with knobs and wires. That was uh there weren't many people doing that at that time, basically yeah. Richard Teitelbaum, and I can't think of many other people who were doing it
1: all right so you you make your way to New York now, how quickly do you fall in with this downtown music scene as it came to be known?
2: yeah, pretty quickly, in that uh, uh very early on that we started uh I remember um I remember Bob saying, you got to come." I'm going to go hear this wild... Oh, oh! I know what it was. Uh, uh, we met uh, John Zorn and Eugene Chadbourne hmm. at, at, at a gig they were doing where I think Bob and I were two out of five people there. <laughs> and then Eugene invited us to put our first record on his label, which was Parachute. Hmm. So this would have been about 1980, 81, or maybe 79, 80. Uh, and yeah, so we... Uh, we begin. You know, that was when a lot of the people associated with the, the quote-unquote downtown scene were just moving to New York. So we were all just kind of uh, coagulating in the in, in the scene at that time. And then um, there was this. Uh, Wayne Horvitz had a, and and some other folks had. Um, uh, I'm forgetting a few names. Mark. Uh, oh God, uh, Strummer. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, they had this place called Studio Henry, mm-hmm. which was on Morton Street, and that was another place where people hung out and played and Fall Mountain played there. I'll always remember playing there because you were always playing. Whatever the band was, there was an added member, which was the cricket that never stopped chirping, never stopped <laughs> chirping. <laughs> Through every gig, there was a cricket chirping. A literal a literal cricket in this <laughs> yeah, case. <laughs> a real cricket. There was, And sometimes there was more than one. Yeah.
1: And you also start... Issuing some recordings under your own name, fairly early. Yeah, so on.
2: I started then. Then, well, so basically in in '81, Fall Mountain broke up totally amicably, but Bob uh, uh, Bob wanted to try to save the world, which certainly has never stopped needing saving. Mm-hmm. He went to El Salvador, you know, working on uh, you know the politics in Central America. But at the same time, Jim, the violinist, he had a stroke, which was unbelievable. He was only about 25 years old. Wow. And so that effectively ended the group. Uh, Jim, he survived it, and he's a, a happy man up in Litchfield, Connecticut now. I don't think he plays the violin anymore. Anyway, so I was left to my own devices. And, and um, you know, in those days, you could... I i was doing some shows at the public theater i was playing on people's demos this was back when you needed musicians to to play on demos and things like that i mean it was a very different world than it is today but i also um you know started working on solo music and uh um and i started a label called lumina and put out three of my own solo recordings on it those have all been reissued on john zorn's Asodic label now mm-hmm. they're called lumina recordings And, um, I, uh, yeah, I spent about four years where my primary creative outlet was playing solo and I still play a lot of, I mean, I've played solo concerts ever since then, but, um, semantics, the group that I think sparked your interest in interviewing me was actually something I put, it was the first group I put together, uh, I mean, even though I was playing solo music, I was I was playing as a sideman with people, but it was the right. first group that I put together. It was a cooperative group, but I did start it uh, with Elliot Sharp and Sam Bennett, and that was, you know, about four years later in like 1985. Right. For people that are listening, when you say solo,
1: you don't mean like as a band leader, you mean solo, just you. I mean, just me. Yep. Yeah. I was reading in Elliot Sharp's book where he talks about. Hooking up with you and and Sam, I, I believe he says you had a gig at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in April of eighty five. You did, and you asked that's uh, correct. You asked that's him and correct. Sam to to back you up. Tell me about that. You obviously well, had that... seen them both perform individually.
2: Oh oh yeah. yeah yeah no we don't we were all kind of yeah on the scene. I I, I imagine that I, I imagine that I had played probably with them separately in some kind of improv occasion, because there were kind of improv gigs that happened. Although, I, I mean, I, I honestly can't remember. I, I'm quite sure that that trio had never played. Uh, the, the The concert uh, was occasioned by, I, I got a grant from the New York Foundation in the Arts, and there was kind of a concert. Uh, the, the New York Foundation of the Arts gives grants in all artistic fields, but the mu- music grants, um, you, you, well, they, you had to perform, do a concert to fill the grant, but they also gave you the the venue, um, and and you funded it kind of out of part of the the grant money. And yes, it was up at the Cooper Hewitt uh, Museum. Those were the days when there were a lot of avant garde concerts at museums, which is something that I really miss. Yeah. Um, uh, since then, with with funding becoming more difficult, there it's it's. Uh, you know, all the arts have to circle the wagons and, you know, uh, uh, there's m- much less uh, music happening in, in, in art museums than there were uh, back in the 80s. And, um, and anyway, yeah, we played, I think we played outside in the, you know, it's a very beautiful mansion up there on Fifth Avenue. Yeah, uh, so I invited them and, um, you know, that was the beginning of the band
1: okay. um,
2: and we decided to keep it going. Well,
1: we know about Elliot. We've had him on the show before. Tell, mm-hmm. me about, tell me about Sam Bennett, though. What can you tell me
2: about Sam? Oh, well, Sam is a tremendous uh, musician and, and, and now really a, a, a singer-songwriter, percussionist. He lives in Tokyo. Um, so at that time, well, one of the interesting things about semantics was that all three of us were, did, did extensive solo work. Right. uh uh all three of us had, did a lot of concerts by ourselves and could make a could make a real racket um so it was more you know for a trio it was almost like uh making space for each other rather than filling the sausage was the, was was more <laughs> the problem because uh, Ellie you know plays the was well still plays this double neck guitar and bass and mm-hmm. all these pedals and he could he could uh, certainly fill the room all by himself and Sam at that time was playing a very hybrid drum kit of his own design. Uh, Sam had spent a long time in, in Africa, and really, he really has his African drumming uh, rhythmic chops together, the bell patterns, all these kinds of things. And he had a very interesting way of setting up the kit where if you just heard it, you would, it would sound impossible because often he would be playing like cowbells with his feet. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which so you're like, wow, how, how is that... <laughs> stains because you assume that a cowbell is being played right. with somebody holding it in their hand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he would be hitting all sorts of different kinds of things with his feet, which were not what you might expect. Sometimes a bass drum, but um, oftentimes other things. And was not it, it was what he his kit was not cymbal heavy. It was actually uh, yeah, not so many cymbals. Um Much more different kinds of wood and and drum sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he Sam has always had a tremendous groove, and I've played with Sam to this day. We have a uh, well. There's a a group that doesn't play that much because he lives in Japan, but it's called Rub, and it's with Kazu Kazuhisa Uchihashi, who's an, an amazing guitarist and daxophone player. The daxophone is an instrument invented by the great German guitarist Hans Reichel. It's wood held in a clamp with with a with a, with a mic in it that you bow or hit. Okay. And that band, to me, is kind of the successor to Semantics, um, R-U-B. There's only one uh, CD, which is uh, uh, on my label, Animal. Uh, but I've played a lot with Sam and Uchihashi in all kinds of contexts. And and Sam and I actually have just been, uh, we've worked uh, with vocalist Sanko Namchalak, a Tuvan vocalist who is quite famous in China. And we have a, there's a group called Sanko Cosmos, which toured in China th- Three or four times with Sam playing drums, and Sam also now uh, sings. And 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 uh, well, not so long after Semantics, he started a band called Chunk, right, which has a bunch of uh, CDs on the Knitting Factory label. And then at some point he moved to Tokyo, and certainly became you know less omnipresent in New York. But but he's a guy. <laughs> Sam writes a song about every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I've
1: seen his band camp. It's he's pro- he's, yeah. a <laughs> yeah, he's a prolific
2: guy. Yeah, he's a prolific guy, and um, I, uh, yeah, I highly advise people to check him out. The funny thing about Sam is, as he evolved, I always felt like he was the right musician, but often in the wrong place. He was always in the, you know, playing in these very avant-garde contexts, but actually, he became very much a singer-songwriter, and that's one of those funny things where I. I Part of me thinks, you know, Sam's from Alabama, and um, he's got a very Americana kind of mm-hmm. thing, and he's doing these concerts in, in Tokyo where most of the audience doesn't even understand what he's saying. <laughs> and I'm like, man, you should be doing this stuff in, you know, Nashville or right. Memphis, you know, anyway.
1: Okay, so you do this gig, and it clicks, I'm assuming. So you decide to do a record, and you do your first one, 85, yeah. 86, comes out on a German right. label Review Records and also in the US I think on Rift Records. Tell me about that first record. did it did, did Well, it... The, the
2: the the it was uh the the German release was basically a license of the American release. Rift Records was Fred Frith's label. So we made the agreement with Fred, but then uh well, there was a couple of of branches of No Man's Land. Rift was related to No Man's Land, which was a label out of Würzburg, and they just they yeah they put out the same music but with a different pressing you know a different manufacturing thing but it was the same record yeah that record we um yeah i was very pleased with that record it it made quite a splash uh um and it was just called semantics we didn't have a i think i think we were still Rothenberg, sharp bennett and and by naming that record semantics we realized oh well that that should also be the name of the group which is nice. why the second record was semantics bone of contention ah. but the first record I think was uh, yeah a band discovering its name <laughs> but yeah most of it was done um, at a wonderful studio which used to exist that speaking I mean New York is of course full of was full of recording studios in those days and now if you're as old as me you you wax nostalgic about all these great rooms and this was at Radio City Studios, which is literally above Radio City Music Hall. Uh, when you take a break, you could go downstairs and walk down some stairs and look through the roof of the, the, the ceiling of the music hall at at the at whatever act was playing. Yeah. And in this studio, this went back to, I mean, Billie Holiday recorded in the studio. It was a beautiful big room. And uh, this engineer Don Hunenberg who I think did a beautiful job. And... Um, yeah, we all contributed tunes, and um, I think that record came out very well.
1: Yeah, and Don also did the second one, "Bone of Contention." No, I think Martin Beasy did it, didn't he? Well, depends. What does it say on it? Well, <laughs> it it says mixed at BC Studios.
2: Yeah, right. Okay. So I'm going to be real honest with you here. I I, I um I remember we recorded it. The, the 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 sound of the second record is very Martin Beezy, yeah. and if you like that sound, it's that sound. It's a little boxy for me. But, El, um, Elliot
1: told me the whole record was done at BC Studios, so the second one. This,
2: yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, but I thought you were saying Don did the second record too.
1: Well, depends. The internet says he did, <laughs> but the internet oh, has I been known trust... to be wrong.
2: No, no. So Elliot and I remember, are remembering the same thing. I yeah. would definitely remember. I would definitely trust our memories. I, I mean, I'm not saying my memory is always perfect, but if Elliot and I both think the same thing, just because something's up in the internet, come on, man, there is so much uh, uh, errata on the internet. I, I, I could, you know, we could have a whole interview where, you know,
1: well, you just, I mean, obviously, where you just poke in politics, holes and all
2: we can talk about, yeah, what happened in the last election. But even in, in the mundane music world where, you know, there's no political slant, People just, people pick up ideas, like a, a, a writer will make a mistake 30 years ago, somebody else will pick it up and suddenly, you know, you're, you're, I was, I, I, I did a project with Steve Naive with Sting and Elvis Costello that, you know, happened on Deutsch Grammar Fine and everything, but there was this, somebody wrote something that I played in Sting's band. I never played in Sting's <laughs> band. People just, you know, people make. Yeah. Yeah. Don't trust what you read on the internet. (laughs) Right. No, it does sound like a, like a BC studio recording for sure. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And, and, uh, but, but no, but the band, you know, um, with both those records that that band, um, certainly of any group I ever played with, we had a little, um, (laughs) uh, mini fish, Grateful Dead scene, mostly all in Europe. Mm -hmm. where you know people would follow us around my biggest frustration was semantics i'll be honest with you it was such a guy band yeah (laughs) oh man man we we did gigs where i remember a gig in bielefeld in germany where the whole place was absolutely packed and the only woman in the place was the waitress
1: (laughs) well for all (laughs) intents and purposes you're a rock band more or less in if you want well, to yeah, make a general some statement. Band, some
2: rock bands still attract a slightly mixed audience. That's and, true. And, and in terms of my other uh, efforts, you know, I mean one of the reasons I love playing with Sanko is that, you know, as playing with a woman, there women come and and mm-hmm. and you know, women are half the half the human race. I was very happy with the size of the crowds that we drew on our last couple tours in Europe, but I was always frustrated because they were they were so male heavy. <laughs>
1: That answers one of my questions. You did tour the, at least the second record, Bone of Contention. Yeah, I
2: ob- I honestly can't quite remember the. The band was active whatever eighty five to like eighty nine or ninety, hmm. and we made the two records and we did I don't know three four five uh, trips to Europe. I think I think there were probably uh, maybe only about three real tours and then a couple, you know, some, some festival invites, which weren't, you know, which were less extensive, but honestly, man, I, I, uh, we are talking what, uh, 40 years yeah, ago. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I used to think I had a good memory for, for gigs and stuff. I think I have a better memory for like how things were made and stuff, but I've, I've, in the past five or 10 years, I've had people say, uh, well, I had one. I remember the thing that shut my mouth was a guy saying, oh, I always remember. the." I think it was a semantics gig. I remember when you played and it was some town in Germany, like Augsburg or something. And and I didn't remember ever playing this gig. I said, are you sure? I don't think I ever played there. And he sent me the poster. <laughs>
0: <There> <laughs> and, uh,
2: and I was like, you know what, Ned? You know, just shut your mouth and say thank you. You you don't remember what happened. Yeah. Okay, I'm wondering if
1: you can tell me about some of the the techniques that you you use uh, for your playing because I don't really understand them, but I, I read about them, like circular breathing. What how does what is that? Can you circular describe? Circular
2: breathing it? is where you uh, it's 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 a technique where you use the air in your cheeks to sound your horn it's something for horn players uh, Mm -hmm. to sound your horn while uh, uh, you breathe in through your nose so you can play continuously Mm. Um, it's not at all something I invented people you know many people in um, creative music Evan Parker Ross on Roland Kirk are known for circular breathing Uh, but but for instance, Evan and Rassan and myself, you know, we've made it a, 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 a and Elliot does it. You know, Elliot also plays horns. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't play horns in semantics, but El- Elliot is also a circular breather. It, and, and it wasn't invented by modern musicians. There are there are uh, shepherds in Morocco who can circular breathe. There's a whole tradition of bagpipe playing. I'll call it bagpipe playing in Sardinia called Launatus, which is great music. But there's no bag to this pipe it's like a, it's it's it because the bag is your um uh cheeks ah. and in fact the bagpipe is a kind of external circular breathing machine <laughs> <laughs> something that everybody knows that's what, why the bagpipe goes on like right that. right um but yeah so that that's the technique in terms of the thing that people seem to get confused about is i'll always you know people will say to me how long have you been doing that circular breathing music it, it, there's nothing about circular breathing that determines what the music is. In fact, I think you have to kind of make the music require circular breathing. It, when, when, it, when it's done, you know, I've heard people playing bebop do it, and it's just silly doing p- for bebop because the phrases need to breathe. But if you're, if you're thinking about things that might be played on keyboard or guitar or, or drum patterns and things like that, it really lends itself to being able to play. Well, what what I call there there are ways in which you can play polyphonically on a on a on a woodwind instrument that that um, circular breathing uh, very much
1: is key to. Mm-hmm. Okay, another description of I guess a technique that you use to achieve a certain sound that seemed to come up a few times is overtone manipulation. Mm-hmm. What can you describe
2: what that is? Well uh do you understand that all sounds are created by a, a, a complex of overtones? okay The reason my voice sounds different than your voice is because we have different um, uh, different amounts of overtones in them if you hear, if you know what a sign tone is no a sign tone like when you have a hearing test it's just mm. a pure electronic sound which is nothing but the frequency it it Says so right uh, on a tuning fork, you have some you have 440, that's a concert A in Western music. And uh, if you have a sign tone, all it sounds like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to imitate my you know, is a beep, you know, something like that, right? But in fact, it, it has no overtones to it. What makes a flute sound different than a saxophone and an electric guitar is the overtone content so every sound this is this is a physical reality of music and you know i i, I don't think i'm going to make a class on it now but but it's definitely worth if 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 that if the statement of overtone manipulation doesn't make any sense to you i highly recommend that you oh uh, you know do a little googling of the overtone series and you will see that um well, another good example of what the overtone series is, is what brass instruments are. You've all, everybody knows the bugle, right? Mm-hmm. Reveille and taps. Yep. So that's just, that's just a tube. It's like a trumpet with no, 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 uh, no valves, right? So all that, all that instrument can play is the overtone series. So <laughs> those are all. Uh, overtones of the same lower pitch, the, the same, the, the, the tube on that bugle vibrates at a certain fundamental and all the notes that it plays above it are, are, are the, the, the player is using his chops to focus on different overtones. Mm-hmm. But then the tone of it itself is a, is a, is a, a configuration of overtones. Just as I say, your voice is that and my voice is that, but they are different because we have the different physiology, which creates um, a different sound. And in terms of the saxophone, the saxophone actually, even though it has all those keys or the clarinet, they also can be uh, uh, manipulated like the trumpet, uh, where you're playing the overtones with with your chops or using various techniques with the keys to excite different overtones. And the sound of playing off the overtone series on the woodwind instruments are very distinctive from quote unquote normal straight ahead notes. But also on guitar, I mean, I would think people, uh, uh, your listeners knowing this is, uh, the focus is SST. SST. There's a lot of, lot of guitar nerds, you know, when, 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 you, when somebody tunes a guitar with uh, uh, harmonics, right? Right, yep. That's, those are overtones off the string. And and uh, uh, that's that, and it's very easy to hear because the overtones, the the harmonics are a purer sound, closer to a sine tone. So it's very easy to hear whether the strings are in tune right. when you have that very pure sound. Gotcha. That's why most guitarists tune <laughs> back before there were tuners, and everybody did it <laughs> <laughs> off a machine. Uh, uh, I highly, uh, uh, I encourage all my students to tune their instruments by ear. Um, but anyway yes the, the overtone series is 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 the overtone series is a magnificent physical basis of sound and uh js bach back in the uh uh the baroque period created a even tempered system of dividing up sound uh, in the octave the octave is the most basic that's the first level of overtones and that's something that uh is absolute in all cultures, even though, even though there are different kinds of scales than the piano in different c- cultures. The, the Bach created this even-tempered scale that the piano is made of. Everybody on earth hears the octave as an octave. And how you divide that octave up is, 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 is
1: culturally what music is made of. Now, when you guys were composing these songs, Elliot gets some credits, you get some credits... Sam gets some credits and then there's some group writing credits. How much of this was would have been written in rehearsals and did you rehearse lots and how much of it it was improvised say directly in the studio?
2: Most of the pieces that have all three names were uh improvisations on the spot. Okay. There were a few where we kind of developed them together. And the ones where it's one name, yeah, the, one of us came up with it. But, you know, when you're, you know, you're working with uh, uh, distinctive players, everybody was adding their own sauce to it. For sure. But, um, and then there were a few where they were like an, an improvisational um, cueing system. I know I, I devised a few pieces that were based on on on, on sets of cues where, you know, Downbeats would be given and the music would change on a downbeat, and there'd be certain rules depending upon what the signal was that was given. We rehearsed a lot for a certain period but uh, I don't remember how long it was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the cover art of the Bone of Contention record at least the photo was taken by and I hope I get this name right Robert Sitsima of Mofungo.
2: Robert Sitsima yeah.
1: yeah. Friend of the band I'm assuming.
2: Yeah, Frank, Frank, I, I knew him a little, but he was mainly a friend of Elliot's. And I believe that, um, you know, that's a the the photo is a, a Mexican um, Day of the Dead piece of art, mm-hmm. and I believe it was Elliot's. And we just took took a picture of it and put it on the record. But it might have been Sam's. I, I uh, but yeah, it's it, it, you know what the Day of the Dead is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I know that that's what
1: it's based on. Okay. Never any talk of a third Semantics
2: record? Uh, no, we kind of went our separate ways after, you know, Elliot got involved in many of his projects. And I have to, you know, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. That band was too loud for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a horn player, you know, Sam started playing uh, a lot of electronic percussion. Elliot, you know, when you're, when you're a guitarist, you can turn it up to whatever. But the horn player is just blowing his brains out. Right. And and I, and I had, you know, we had gigs where I'd go back to the hotel and my ears would be ringing, and I just was like, no, no, this is not good. And, uh, and honestly, you know, I've played in various things in, in my career at what we might call, and I had a band called Double Band after this, which was pretty loud, but still it was two horn players, two electric bass players, and two drummers. It wasn't as semantics on a on a loud night and we played in some very you know like concrete bunker one place was called the bunker you know right These like you know clubs in europe that were like you know 250 people in a in a in a concrete box no monitors and, <laughs> oh man <laughs> and it was it was just it was effing loud yeah. it was it, you know and and um so i mean that the main reason i uh, wrapped up with semantics uh, is it, I just I just didn't want to play that loud anymore. Yeah. And Elliot had a bunch of other projects and they were all really and he was really into playing that loud. And Sam could totally play that loud. But Sam also was getting into his songwriting thing. You know, we were just we were just growing out of it. You know, bands have a I really think, especially when you get to be uh, our age, you know, um, people think of the breakups of bands as a as a tragedy. It, it, it's not you know i mean uh uh, uh there, there wasn't any uh ill feeling and 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 it was just time to you know bands have their life and and uh, they they go on mm-hmm. and people go on and they go on to the next things and semantics had a had a had a nice little uh period there
1: all right so what are, what are some of those next things what are you doing now Musically.
2: Well, I, I mean, I should say if, 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 to go from uh, 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 semantics was done by, you know, early 1990s. So I, I did a, <laughs> lo- a lot of things came and went since then. I'm sure uh, 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 I had my own group, Double Band, which actually used a bunch of the ideas that I I'd developed with semantics. Um, and there are three CDs uh, on MERS records, which I, 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 I'm very proud of. Yeah, that was by there was a a project called Power Lines, which was uh, in the New York Times top 10 uh, shortly after Semantics broke up that I'm very proud of on New World Records. Now I have a group called Sync with a tabla player and electric bass player, Jerome Harris, who played with uh, he plays electric bass and electric guitar and uh, acoustic bass and acoustic guitar. And uh, there are four CDs of, of Sync, SYNC, SYNC existed before InSync, by the way. <laughs> um, I, we did a gig in Des Moines, which I loved because the front of the art section said, these guys, not these guys. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, it went, and had our band instead of <laughs>
0: um,
2: uh In terms of what I'm doing right now, I mean, of course,
0: yeah,
2: in this COVID period, uh, nobody's doing a whole lot, but... There's a new group with uh, a pianist and composer, Sylvie Corvassier, who, who uh, is just a tremendous musician and a um, uh, Swiss drummer. She's Swiss, but she lives here. And a Swiss drummer, Julian Sartorius. And we called the trio Lockdown in tribute to the period oh. when it came together. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did a kind of... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what should we call it? Semi tour in 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 October and and record a a record which is going to come out shortly on Clean Feed. It's uh, the 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 record is called Lockdown. It may end up being the same thing like Semantics, where right. we end up calling the group Lockdown. But right now it's just Kovacier, uh Rothenberg, Sartorius, CRS. Um, and I I do a lot of concerts um, in uh, various formations with Evan Parker, the great uh, British. Uh, saxophonist. I have this project with Sanko Namchalak on and off for years and years. She's a, a an amazing singer from Tuva who lives in Europe. There's a record coming out shortly, which is a uh, a record by Steve Naive, the keyboard player, and uh, with Elvis Costello called Fuji Rama, where we we played together. I'm one of a few people that he's collaborating with on that. Yeah, so it's it's it, it's a range of stuff. Where can people find all of this? Well, I think the easiest thing is is uh, uh, my website is being redesigned, but it is uh, you can certainly see it now nedrothenberg.com. There's a lot of stuff up there. There's a bandcamp page, uh, Ned Rothenberg on bandcamp yeah you you can also just google me, put me in Amazon, whatever you'll see all these uh, you'll see all the stuff that
1: comes up. All right, Ned, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking
0: the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Right on. Thanks, Ned, for being on the show. It sounds like such a cool scene back then. Hey, like just anything goes. Yeah, man.
1: Well, and it was just a real mashup of theater, visual art. Yeah, um, right. You know, filmmaking um, and all the stuff was happening in lofts, in uh, art galleries, and so much of it was, you know, there's a lot of films and stuff that, you know, these dudes did soundtracks for and, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, pretty cool. I will say, though, like, one of the things that stood out the most for me on this record was actually Ned's playing. Obviously, all three of the players are on fire, but the uh, the sax and other reed instrument playing on this record definitely stood out for me right off the bat.
1: Yeah, for me too. Uh, yeah, so the record, Ryan... Bone of Contention, as you see in the liner notes, says was also recorded at Radio City in September of 87, and it says mixed by Martin B.C. at B.C. Studio uh, in September of 87, but both Elliot and, as you heard in the interview, Ned insist it was not recorded at Radio City,
0: solely at B.C. Studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did Don Hoonerberg do anything on it? He's the one that's listed as engineer. Well, he engineered the first one, so
1: I don't know what happened there. Yeah. If one of two things, either Elliot and Ned are both remembering incorrectly, or there's a typo on the on the packaging. Uh, Elliot confirmed to me he was the SST connection. He says he sent the recording to Gin and he liked it. Which makes total sense. This is definitely you know, it fits with some of the stuff SST was putting out around this
0: time and afterwards. Oh yeah. And even some of the stuff that Gin was doing on guitar with the instrumental stuff like with yeah. with Flag and Gone would would have fit on this right Yeah uh came out on November 4th 1987 on LP CD and cassette Yeah and here's what the Spaceman said about this in the catalog The Semantics study the specifics of musical language Sam Bennett Ned Rothenberg and Elliot Sharp are semantics. Together they have perfected space in flight, correctly worded and heavily stated. Whoa. Yeah. I also found a quick spiel in Trouser Press on this too. And this is, of course, under the Elliot Sharp entry. Mm-hmm. The ending's kind of interesting though too. It says, Semantics is a rock jazz power trio with drummer Sam Bennett, who sometimes plays in Carbon, and saxophonist Ned Rothenberg. The group's phenomenal debut mashes Rothenberg's rhythmic interweaving sax lines with Sharp's forceful bass and guitar. The more chaotic and noisy bone of contention generally eschews the song structures of semantics and is more on the jazz, if not the free jazz side of the band's stylistic fusion. And then right underneath it, it says, see also Firehose, Mofungo, and the scene is now. What's the fire hose connection? Hmm, I don't know. Is it is it bootstrappers? Might be bootstrappers.
1: There you go, yeah, maybe. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, well, fungo for sure.
0: Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get yeah. to that in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah,
1: can't wait. All right, let's go through these tracks, Ryan. History lesson, part two. Okay, track one, side one. Arbite Fry, written by E Sharp. Great opener, cool challenging melody, lets you know right off the bat you know what you're getting with this record. Elliot does a gnarly noisy solo,
0: Sam playing a pretty traditional sounding mm-hmm. kit by his standards. Yep. Yeah, it I, my notes here are like there is some just some insane sax and six string shredding. Like just Yeah. It's Im- I'm surprised that Ned could keep his reed in his mouthpiece with this playing.
1: (laughs) The circular breathing, man.
0: Yeah, no doubt.
1: Uh, Track two, Trumped Up Charges, which is a Ned song. Almost a free jazz thing going on at times with this one. Uh, Some backwards guitar, pretty atonal at times. Some
0: wild-ass sax riffing from Ned. Yeah, the marching snare kind of holds it all together lots of multi-tracking on this tune and all over the record too hey lots and yeah. lots of layers going on like you can hear like just some atonal kind of droning in the background and then an upfront melody solo th- shred and then you can hear one buried deeper in the mix you know it's all over
1: yeah yeah for sure track three addressy unknown another e-sharp song i think this is the one that Elliot would be playing the lap steel on.
0: Yeah, it's definitely slidey.
1: Uh, slidey, but it's it. This is not the blues. No, <laughs> no. It's no. pretty discordant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Track four, Subsequential. This is one written by Sam Bennett, and you can tell it's built around you know percussion. It's wicked, wicked yeah, percussion here. track. Here's what Sam told me. He says, I was trigger- triggering samples from drum pads, also using some of the early drum synths, like the Snare, and mixing that stuff in with actual drums. My hybrid acoustic electric drum kit was evolving rapidly in those days. I was always
0: trying new stuff, whatever I could beg, borrow, or steal. Hmm. Yeah, it start- starts out... Pretty straight ahead, like relatively speaking, on the album. But near the end, it it devolves yeah. really nicely, I would say.
1: The song or the album? This song. Yeah, that's what I that's what I wrote. I like the end of the song when they really start letting fly.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Track five, shredded, written by Elliot.
0: Shredded, shredded, shredded.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the um, Ryan's referencing the uh, the sample, uh, Well... Elliot's playing some super funky slap bass, locking into a nice groove with Ned. Uh, here's here's Elliot. I had a MIDI pickup on my double neck guitar bass and used it to trigger samples on an Ensonic Mirage in Shredded, but also in others such as Revolver and Subsequential. Pretty cool how he, how he did that. You can yeah. see footage of him doing that on YouTube.
0: Yeah, it, it right off the bat... The track, the way it starts out with uh, just the rhythmic melody, it really referenced for me some early 80s Peter Gabriel and Talking Heads type records, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. I liked it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking back here, I'm, I hope I get this right, but that awesome show that was on TV called Night Music, I think it was called, you can see a lot of those episodes on YouTube and there's one that has Elliot on it and... He might even be playing with John Zorn. I know Zorn was on that show, but I can't remember if it was with Elliot or it, on a different one. But anyways, you can see Elliot playing that. The Mirage. Neck, yeah, playing and the that. the Mirage it, too, right? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we flip it over, and we start the B-side with the longest tra- track on the album at 6 minutes 53 seconds. It's called Revolver, and it's written by Ned. Uh, this one's cool. It's almost a bit laid back. I think this might be the one that has pan pipes in it or maybe the Oricana. Yeah. But then
0: it kind of builds as the song goes along. It seems to have that African rhythmic vibe to it from time to time for sure. Maybe that's Shakauchi's playing on this one. Maybe. Yeah. I don't think he gets uh credit on the back of the album jacket, but we know that mm. the back of the jacket might not be reliable.
1: That's right. Way down yonder in the Shakahoochee. It might be the Ocarina. Might be. Track two, Animal Farm. This is the first track credited to the whole group. Uh, Definitely sounds like a somewhat spontaneous jam in the studio. Got me thinking, it's too bad they didn't release a live album.
0: Mm. That would
1: have been great. I wonder if they recorded any of the shows that they did.
0: There's probably. Someone probably has video footage of it somewhere, I bet you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear a live album. I bet you they
0: just went off live improvising. Yeah, here again, though, on Animal Farm, there's just so many tracks and layers going on. Maybe Elliot will hear this and release
1: a live semantics record to his Bandcamp page. Stranger things have happened. One can only hope.
0: <laughs> just look at last week.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, track three Pay for Their Crimes, written by Sam. This is the only track with vocals on it, and it's Sam on vocals. I asked him about it, and he says, It's one of the very first songs I ever wrote. Pretty sure that was the first time I ever did any singing on a record. Since then, I've written hundreds and hundreds of songs, which he most certainly has, if you (laughs) go on his Bandcamp page. And singing is really kind of the main thing I do now as a musician. Back then, it was something completely new to me.
0: Hmm.
1: Again... You can hear E-sharp, for sure, doing that crazy move where he manipulates samples on that double-neck guitar bass all over this one. Track 4, Code Ring, written by Elliot. This is another one that is basically free jazz, at least to my ear.
0: Oh yeah, for this one it needed a bit of decoding Yeah. in order to like get into it, but it took a few lessons and then I was there.
1: And then we end the record with kind of an ambient jam with a fair amount of overdubbing from Elliot called The Big Sleep, again credited to
0: the whole band. Uh, a cool way to end the record, for sure. Yeah, there, it seems like there's some backwards tape manipulation sounds. Uh, the clarinet, or bass clarinet, is coming out in this one too, a little bit more prominently. It's good. Yeah.
1: I'll read you, Ryan, the all music review from Richard Foss. When you hear the powerful dissonant blast of Arbite Mockfry, the first cut on Bone of Contention, it's hard to believe that the album could possibly all be this confrontational. Surprise, you're listening to what is probably the most accessible and conventional cut. The semantics <laughs> pulled out <laughs> <Very> <laughs> It's true. true. Yeah. yeah, very true. The Semantics pulled no punches anywhere on this amazing release, which ranks with the most daring and successful examples of avant garde rock. Elliot Sharp's guitars and basses howl, pound, and occasionally soothe. Ned Rothenberg blows up a jazz fury on not only saxes and clarinet, but ocarina and panpipe. And it's a measure of how good he is that he can get demonic riffs out of the latter two instruments. Sam Bennett pounds the heck out of all sorts of drums, often playing in time signatures that at first seem to have nothing to do with the rest of the music, but somehow makes sense. It's an overpowering sound that can leave a listener sonically bruised and exhausted, but amazed at the passion, power, and inventiveness of it all.
0: True. Very true.
1: Yeah, it's a really cool record. And the first one's good, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, first one is a little bit more straight ahead to my yeah. ears. But they go together as a package for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if you're into this, check out some of Ned's stuff too. And uh, the Ned Rothenberg double band is cool too. And I want to check out his first stuff he mentions in the interview. Fall Mountain, I think they were called. Mm. Yeah, some homework to do for sure. Yeah. Yeah. How about the cover, Ryan? So this is the Mofungo connection, as we mentioned in the interview. Uh, Robert Setsema, if I'm saying that right. I know... Ned says his name in the interview, so I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Uh, He shot the cover. It says on the back, the statues, both on the cover and on the back, are from the collection of Pedro Agua Casa. Mm -hmm. The layout on the back cover kind of reminds me of Dinosaur Jr.'s Little Fury Things EP.
0: Yep, I totally agree. And uh, uh, also the front... The way that it's set up with just some words and an image in a box, it actually reminded me of, arguably, an artist that's maybe more cl- closer to the this group of guys. The Scott Colby "Slide of Hand" album cover.
1: Yeah, good put point.
0: The, put these two side, you know, side by side, and that's a nice pair for sure. And they, uh, they definitely are closer in style. Some of the uh, the artwork on the back, though, it's it's got. You know, as Ned mentioned, Day of the Dead types references. That one little uh, figure of statues definitely looks like some gremlins going to town, (laughs) just eating a bunch of like it looks like cats or something. Yeah. And then um, lots of religious and uh, indigenous imagery, Um, but it's interesting. Like it's it seems all over the place. There's like you know, you know, Beethoven, Mozart. A modern rock band, uh, some Romans because you can see some Roman columns in the back. It looks like Egypt with uh, one of the Egyptian queens playing some sort of harp thing. Uh, looks like some Christians, like some Franciscan monks. It's just a weird collage of, again, like historic, religious, um, and and musical references. It kind of fits, but then it doesn't. The dude in the bottom left, too, um, that face with the mustache, it just reminds me of Salvador Dali, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, there's a, a portrait photo of the band done by Hope Martin. It's really one of the only photos I've been able to find of the band. Uh, the live photo on the back is by Anno Ditmer. Just the name of the photographer just makes me think that that was possibly taken on the European tour. Mm-hmm. Only a guess, though.
0: Yeah, playing a rocking a PV amp in the back. You can see there. Yeah. That photo of them, though, I presume it's in New York, like all in their trench coats and scarves. Yeah. They look pretty badass. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man. Well, it's a badass record, and it's too bad again that. I hope people can hear this. It's not streaming anywhere. I, if it's up on a Bandcamp page somewhere, I haven't been able to find it. It's really too bad because it's good. Hopefully, it's on YouTube or something where somewhere pe-
0: where people can hear it if they don't own it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't bother to look. I should have. Yeah, I just. I, I. I used my uh, my copy that I bought years back. It's a total cutout, though. Not surprised to see that. Yeah. It's. It has one of those. What is now becoming a very typical, aged to yellow perfection, cheap SST white paper <laughs> sleeve in there, and everything. So uh, it's a nice package, though. I wonder. I mean, I wonder how much it's sold, other than on like the East Coast in Europe. Probably yeah. not a bunch, hey? Probably not. Yeah. If there's you know, some, if there's some live tracks for these guys, do. Do for a reissue with a, some bonus live tracks. That would be killer. Yeah, well,
1: they reissued the first one, right? Like, what exactly. would have been perfect is if they reissued both records with some live stuff or something.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if they were more laid back or even wilder live. Like, probably, probably a bit of both, right? They probably, yeah. you know, when you see an avant garde band, sometimes they start out pretty tame. And then it just goes nuts and you don't even know what's going on because it's just washing all over you. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any dead wax, Ryan? Negative. All
1: right, then let's go to the ballot result. Ballot result. Which ones you do you pick? Uh, not surprisingly, although I enjoyed the whole record, I kind of picked out the what could be called the two most accessible numbers if you, mm. <laughs> you could even call them that arbite mock fry and shredded
0: oh no way I would have yeah. i I definitely focused more on the first side though, so i'm I'm similar to you there, but I would have included trumped up charges and subsequential because I love the uh the percussion in subsequential for sure, yeah,
1: no, those two are great too. Did my two make your list though? Yes, all right, well, what's it going to be you you pick?
0: Let's go for Arbeit and Mock Fry. Let's uh let's get someone hooked on semantics on a comp tape and get them to buy the album and blow their mind. Yeah, I think that would be the track that would that's the that's the gateway drug for sure. Yeah, if there was like no age volume two, that's the semantics track that would go on it, right? Probably not. What? But it's the one that should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh man. Hey, thanks to Ned Rothenberg for being on the show and to Elliot and Sam for kicking in some stuff too. Great to have
0: everybody involved in this one. Yeah, no doubt. Glad to hear they're all kicking and making music. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going to another first timer on the show. It's SST 168 the Ross Michael solo album, Zion Train. Can't wait.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.